So Deuteronomy chapter 13. Uh, tonight, as we move into these, uh, this section, we're going to see, especially here in this uh, first chapter, we're going to deal with uh, how God instructs the nation of Israel to handle false prophets. And um, what do you do? And so we're going to take some time to consider that. There's going to be a reminder of the festivals that were mandatory <clears throat> that they needed to attend. And so they're going to have that. Uh, we'll have another review of this. This will be our third review um, uh, of these uh, feasts and festivals. Again, more warnings to stay away from idolatry because that was going to be um, a critical issue for them remaining in the land and uh, being able to enjoy the blessings that the Lord was bringing them into. And then we're also going to see that the Lord is going to speak to them about how they should handle their finances, how they should be generous givers, and then a word to the kings and a word to uh, judges in the land. So quite kind of a, a broad range of topics we're going to hit tonight. We're not going to dive deeply into all of them, but there's a few things that are, I believe are we, we can uh, take some time to consider. So let's start there. In uh, chapter 13, and let's uh, talk about these false prophets. And, um, you know, how should, how is the, how's the, um, how's the enemy going to seek to turn them away? How is uh, the, the culture going to seek to turn them away from following uh, the Lord? And, and one of them is through false prophets. So let's read there, verse 1. It says, If there rises among you a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or the wonder comes to pass of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether... You love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God and brought you out of the land who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk, so you shall put away the evil from your midst. So, um, yeah, if the, you know, the false prophet's going to come, it's going to be an individual that would rise up. He's going to be having dreams. He's going to be showing signs and wonders. These things are going to take uh, uh, come to pass. And so there's going to be, like, again, evidence of... Uh, that this person is in touch with a, a power outside of themselves, And he says, but if they tell you to do something other than what the word of God has told you to do, you should not follow them. You should not entice them. And, and really, it's quite serious. What he says is that that person should be put to death. Dreams and signs and wonders that contradict the word of God, whether it's coming from the book of Deuteronomy and the Israel coming in to conquer the land, or whether it's happening in our day, um, if somebody uses those things to begin to move us off of the target of the word of God, we should not think much of their signs and wonders. 
I, I mean, it's really that simple. I mean, you know, there is a dark force that is able to uh, do things like this. Um, 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, Ephesians 6, 11, Revelation 12, 9. It talks about how Satan uses false religions and false prophets and in the last days will do this to deceive. So the, simply because somebody has a dream that comes to pass or they are able to perform a sign or a wonder does not mean we let down our guard. I mean, it's, it's interesting, okay? We can at least say that. That's interesting, but as soon as we begin to hear them speak, that's where we really have to tune in. But I'm afraid that we get more caught up with the sign and the wonder and the dream than we do with the Word of God. It's the Word of God that's the big deal. It's the Word of God that's a wonder. It's the Word of God that we should throw our hands up and just say thank you that we have a revelation from heaven that leads us and guides us into truth. The Antichrist will come with lying signs and wonders. I don't think any of you want to follow them. Nobody should follow them, but the world will be deceived because of the things that they are able to do. Now, this is interesting. Um, there's a verse that relates to the dream, uh, dreams and by the prophet Jeremiah. And, of course, he was prophesying in a day in which <laughs> there was all kinds of false prophets around. So Jeremiah 23, 28 says this, The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord. So wheat is the, is the kernel that you can harvest um, and you can take and you can make bread. You can, you can, it can nourish you. It can sustain life. But Chaff in the ancient world was good for nothing. It was, it's equivalent to agricultural dust. I mean, it's, it's not what you want. There was nothing good from it. And the Bible speaks of chaff as being a worthless um, part of that harvest. So when they would harvest, their, the, the kernel of uh, wheat would be uh, wrapped around uh, that, that chaff. And so they would winnow it. And they would seek to separate the chaff from the wheat. And so they would pound it. They would beat it. Um, I've been in Nepal um, when the harvest time is out there. And they're, they're taking all of the wheat. And they're throwing it on the road. And cars are running it over. And then they come and they pull up away. I mean, So there's all different kinds of ways to accomplish this. Um, but nobody ever comes and sweeps up the chaff. The wind carries it away. And it's gone. And so there's it's valueless. So what... The prophet is saying, prophet Jeremiah is saying is, we have the word of God, and it does, if, a, if somebody comes with a dream, our response, and again, the idea would be that it's not in agreement with the word of God. It's like, it's useless. It's like, well, what do you think about it? I think it's useless. Yeah, but it was a dream that came to pass. It's still useless. Yeah, but they, they said a miracle was going to take place, and the miracle took place, and they had a dream that came to pass. What do you think about it now? It's still useless. And this is how we need to feel about those things that would come in and seek to undermine the word of God. So just to kind of balance the idea of dreams out for a second, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Because a wrong conclusion from what we've just read here in chapter 13 
And then in Jeremiah is, yeah, dreams are bad. Signs and wonders are bad. No, that's not what it says. They're bad when they lead you away from the revealed truth of God's word. So um, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church there in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, um, people around heard them speaking in tongues. They said, whatever could this mean? Um, and some said that they're drunk. Now listen, look at verse 14. It says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, Let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken. That little phrase right there, I, I want you to underline it. I want you to circle it. I want you to highlight it. I want you to put a star by it. Because this is, this is the way we deal with something that's amazing. We want to be able to look and say, this dream, this speaking in tongues, this miracle, this sign, this is that which was found in the Word of God. So they had this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the response is, whatever could this mean? He goes, well, this is an easy one. We got a Bible. And the Bible tells us that this was going to happen, that it should come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. So he's, the idea is not that Scripture is against dreams. Joseph had a dream. It was used of the Lord, right? Um, Joseph interpreted dreams. Uh, Pharaoh, it was, this is, you know, was used of the Lord. Daniel and his uh, companions, they, they were able to deal with dreams. And the Lord spoke to them about things that were going to come to pass. Now what we find in the New Testament, which is where we establish our practice for living and doc we get our doctrine from, is that God said that in the last day he had poured out his spirit and things would happen. There would be dreams and there would be visions. There would be prophecies. It's a, he, he gives us in the context of uh, tongues being spoken. He says, this is going to happen in the last days. So you know what happens is you have people that will dream a dream and they will say something and it's, it's odd and it doesn't line up with the word of God. Or they will give a prophecy and it doesn't line up with the word of God. And so you have somebody that maybe, uh, a, a, you know, a church that speaks in tongues and there's some things that are going on there that are not healthy and they're not good and they're not doctrinally sound. And so what ends up happening is, well, then we should get rid of all of those things. Wherever those things happen, we should not be there because they're not there. But, but that's not what the Bible says. So what we do is we look at these things that are, that are happening, the dream or the vision or the prophecy, uh, the sign or the wonder. And then we come back and we say, but what does the word of God say? I do not feel obligated um, to explain somebody's experience when, it, when there's no biblical foundation for it. Now listen, that, you know, this, that, this is a challenging thing because you may find somebody who's seeking the Lord. They're not a false prophet, okay? They're, they're a Christian. And yet something happens and um, let's say they're healed in some manner. But but what preceded that was some kind of strange thing that has no foundation 
And, you know, in the, in the Gospels, it has no foundation in the book of Acts. It has no foundation in the epistles. The Word of God, the New Testament, is silent on that. And what we often find is that now people will say, well, look, they had a healing or they had this thing take place. This sign or this wonder happened. And we were engaged in doing this. So therefore, we're going to make this a practice and we're going to begin to do this all the time. But can you say this thing is that which was spoken by, you know, Jesus or is spoken by the apostles? Because if you come to the place where it's like it's not there, then, then we got to pull up. Say, well, yeah, but the, a healing happened. Okay. So explain that. Well, this would be my best explanation. God is gracious when we seek him even when maybe what's going on is not 100% correct. And so that does not become a basis for establishing a doctrine of practice. Do you see what I'm saying? So I'm not going to take away from that person's experience or even your experience or even my experience. But I can step back and say, but what does the word of God have to say? Because if this dream is not, does not have an step, and I'm using dream in kind of a, a, an umbrella title of all of these things, um, kind of linking us back to Deuteronomy 13. If the dream is not founded in the word of God, I'm done with it. And so, well, yeah, but, you know, God did this. There is enough listed in the New Testament that we are not doing that we need to now start pursuing things that are not listed in the New Testament. I don't know about your life. I have not arrived yet. There's plenty of things that are still in the Word of God that I need to walk out and I need to live in. There's plenty of listed spiritual gifts with wonderful, amazing power and dynamic that I do not fully walk in, and there is opportunity for me to grow in the things that is found in the Word of God. And so the things that are not found in the Word of God, well, what about that, Troy? I don't know. What is, what is the wheat to the chaff? That's my answer. You know, what is a dreamer's dream? What does it mean if it is not found in the Word of God? Or even worse, as is the, the context in chapter 13, it's leading people astray. So, you know, I, I, I cannot emphasize how important that is and how when, when a group of believers or a church gets more caught up in the experience than they do in what the Word of God has to say, it's not going to be good in the end. Is it, is it to say that nothing is happening there? I, I, I'm not saying that. Um, but we have to use the word of God to determine our practice. And so if we arrive in heaven and we have limited ourselves to walking out the things that are revealed in the word of God and there was more, I'm willing to deal with that one. I'm willing, I'm willing to get in trouble. Why, this is what, because my answer is going to be, I'm sorry, Lord. All I did was look to your word. I read where it said, don't add to your word and don't take away from your word. And that's what we did. But I don't think I'm going to get in trouble for that one. And I don't think you're going to get in trouble for that. I think the problem is going to be, where did all of this chaos come from? Well, yeah, but this thing. No, I was being gracious to you. And I met a sincere seeker, even though you were doing things that I didn't ever tell you to do. And so if it's not found in the word of God, um, we just need to, we need to be done with it. We need to cling to the wheat and let go of the chaff. And so that is the word of the Lord. Now, very harsh. The false prophet is to be put to death. And um, this is the, that we read there. 
um, that this was to purge the evil from the land, right? So you shall put away evil from your midst, the end of verse 5. You will find that phrase listed, uh, found in the book of Deuteronomy um, eight other times. So the idea is to keep the evil away. So one way in which false prophets are going to come in is through an individual. But that's not the only way. Verses 6 through 11 gives another one. So if you found what I just had to say somewhat difficult, I am certain you're going to find this even more difficult. If your brother, the son of your mother, verse 6, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend, who is as your own soul, secretly entices you. So this is not publicly. It's a private conversation. Saying, let us go and serve other gods which you have not known, neither you nor your fathers, of the gods of the people which are all around you, near to you or far from you, or from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. You shall not consent to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him. I want you to pay attention to that line. Nor shall you spare him or conceal him, but you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. And you shall stone him with stones until he dies. And I I go, why? Because he sought to entice you away from Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. So all Israel shall hear and fear And not again do such wickedness as this among you. So it was like, when they find out that it's not an individual who rises up as a false prophet, nor is it a daughter or a son or a good friend who secretly says something, when it becomes the standard of the land that idolatry is forbidden and anybody that pushes it will be put to death, it's going to provide safety. And... um, And the Lord anticipates how they're going to feel. (laughs) We read this and we're all beginning to feel it. What we immediately begin to feel is is compassion and pity. But this is my family. But this is this person. To which the Lord would say, but I'm God. But I'm God. And, And so this is a difficult thing. Now, here we are. This is the old covenant. We We are not walking this out. Um, to murder or stone, uh, to kill people, not murder, to kill people, uh, to put them to death, um, to stone them. We're not doing that today as the church. This was how the nation was to function. These were the rules for the nation. Okay, the church is not a nation. Um, So we, we don't have this as a covenant that we follow. So here's the interesting thing, and I just did this with the whole dreamer and dreams thing. So, you know, we're not gonna stone somebody. Um, that you know has a dream that says, and, and by the way, we should start you know worshiping you know this this other god. We're not going to stone them, um, but we talked about how we should deal you know with dreams in the place of dreams. But I want you to see this. So then, do we does it therefore have no application to us today? Um, you know that we should just allow um, family to say whatever they want, and we just sit by and we say, well, we don't say anything because we're not family and we are not. Um, under the old covenant. Well, we're not, not going to stone them, okay? That's, that's, hopefully we can establish that. We're not under the law. But is there a principle in this law that we can discover 
that is stated and talked about in the New Testament? And the answer is yes. And, and so the idea here I want us to think about is, while we will not stone somebody, is there a proper way for us to confront that and make that sin known and to um, begin to deal with that? And the, the word to these you know, Israelites was, don't love your family more than you love me. Now that should start to sound a little familiar. That should begin to sound a little familiar because Jesus said this, Matthew 10, verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I've come to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So there is the same principle taught. And that is that we do not love family more than we love the Lord. Now, love family. There's plenty of commandments about loving your family. But when the relationship with family is such that they are not following the Lord and it would cause you to not be able to be a, as genuine a follower, taking up your cross and following after him, you will have a choice to make inside of your house. And you want to know who wins? It's not your son or your daughter. It is Jesus. He is first place. And this is difficult. This is hard. But that's the principle that we can find. We don't stone people today. But the Bible does talk about how we should confront in love, right? The Bible also talks about how we should not affirm somebody in sin. We should abhor what is evil and, and cling to what is good. And we need to begin to prayerfully consider how is this relationship now going to be impacted by my response to their sin, by uh, my response to their turning away from the Lord? Can you go on as if nothing happened? And the answer is no, you can't. Now, we're not picking up stones to throw at them either, okay? So we're not doing that, but there is a way. So well, what, what can we do? Well, I mean, it depends on the exact circumstances, but one thing that we're told to do is that if somebody is unwilling to repent, is that they're brought before the church. And, and that they're, they're called to repentance. If they're unwilling to do that, then they would be uh, disfellowshipped. You're like, well, that's harsh. Don't pity them. And actually, I'd even go a step further. Why don't you love them the way the Lord said to love them? So when the Lord said, when somebody sins and you see them going, go and speak to them and, and confront them alone, then take somebody and then take it to the church. And this is what the Lord says. Perhaps you will win them. Perhaps they will return. So God's plan for church discipline is not to be mean. God's plan for church discipline is that they would, what? Repent. So when church discipline is being carried out and somebody says, well, I just, I, I love people too much to treat them like that. I don't think you love them more than the Lord loves them. And that's the Lord's plan. So actually what we should be asking is, if we don't carry out church discipline when it is proper and when it is right, then are we 
not giving God every chance to work in that individual's life to bring conviction upon them and bring them back to the Lord. So this is one thing. Is there's a place for church discipline. But let me give you a couple of verses. Um, 2 John 10. If anyone comes to you, so anyone's kind of broad, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, right, the doctrine of Jesus, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. Ephesians 5.11. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Don't keep it secret. 1 Corinthians 5.11. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. That's all New Testament. All of that is New Testament. So, Is there a principle that we can find that tells us that when people are sinning, that we should do something about it? And the answer is absolutely. And these are some of the places. Now listen, Um, when this is something that happens inside your family, you're going to have to hit your knees and you're really going to have to pray. It should not remain the same. Exactly how it should look like and what you should do, well, I think you're going to have to work through these scripture verses and you're going to have to hear the voice of the Lord. But to embrace them, if it becomes a matter of you affirm my sin or I will not, I will not you know, talk with you, we will not have a relationship, you can't affirm their sin. You can't. You cannot do that. You cannot say, this is okay, this is all right. Now, now listen, there are ways to have conversations and interact with people and not affirm it and have an open discussion without being mean-spirited. There's plenty of opportunity for that. But if the idea is, well, I just can't, I just love this relationship too much, then I think you need to get an eternal perspective of what is it going to mean for them if they continue to do that? What will it maybe mean for another person in your family? What will it mean for another person in the church? Because the idea back in Deuteronomy again was let there be a lesson for the entire congregation. You can find that same principle found in the New Testament. Well, back into Deuteronomy verses 12 through 18, it says what happens if it's an entire city? Well, yeah, do a diligent study and then find out. And if it's true, then that entire city should be put to death in all the animals. So the Lord is very serious about those that would lead others astray. Those are eternal consequences. And, um, and so the Lord is a jealous God, and he does not want anybody led astray. So chapter 13, um, principles to be found in the New Testament as you look at that. Chapter 14. Um, this leads us into a section where there's going to be laws that distinguish. So in verses 1 through 21, Israel was to be a holy people. Um, and they were to be set apart from the nations. And so as you, as you work through this, um, there's all kinds of um, laws that are going to be talked about. But we begin in verses 1 and 2 with basically, um, we don't mourn, like, or Israel was not to mourn like the nations around them. So a lot of their mourning practices were connected in their idolatry. So um, he gives them instruction that um, you should not cut yourselves and not shave the front of your head for the dead. And so he goes on to say what you, know, you should do. So don't do it like the nations in a similar fashion. Is there a New Testament principle for us? And the answer is yes. 
We don't mourn like the world does when a believer passes away. Let me read to you 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, those believers that have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. So when somebody dies in Christ, our grieving is going to be different right? We have the hope of seeing them again, of meeting them in the rapture. So when the rapture happens, we will be caught up into the air, and all that have gone before will also be caught up in the air, receiving their glorified bodies. And so there is a distinction that we don't mourn exactly the same way. Now, I realize that's not 100%, but there is a distinction that we have this hope that sets, it up, sets us apart. Now in chapters 3 through, uh, verses 3 through 21, in chapter 14, another way in which they were to be distinguished was they were not to eat like the nations around them. We have covered this a lot. So I'm going to, you can just, we'll just read a couple of verses and you get a feel for it. You shall not eat any detestable thing. These are the animals which you may eat. The ox, the sheep, the goat, the deer, the gazelle, the roe deer, the wild goat, the mountain goat, the antelope, and the mountain sheep. And you may eat every animal with cloven hooves, having the hoof split in two parts, and that choose the cud among the animals. Nevertheless, those that chew the cud or have cloven hooves, you shall not eat such. So he goes on and he gives you a list of animals you want. So there are certain things they were to eat. There are certain things they weren't supposed to eat. I hope it doesn't disappoint any of you, but you're not supposed to eat a bat. Okay, so um, if you're an Israelite, you weren't supposed to do that either. So it gives you the list of things. So how do we, if we're not under the law, we, we've been talking about this in Hebrews, how do we relate to the dietary laws of the Old Testament? Well, let's ask this question to work into it. Why were they told not to eat unclean animals. Don't say it out loud because what a lot of us have heard is because that was healthier for you. Okay? I'm not going to, I, I'm going to, I'm just what I'm going to challenge you to do. Go find the verse that says that. Go find the verse that says that. It, it, is it better to eat some of these? I'm, I'm not going to argue that some things are not healthier, um, but find the verse that says that. We've got to deal with what scripture says. You're going to be hard pressed to find it. Why then were they to eat um, only clean animals and not eat unclean? And the idea is that they would be separate. They would stand out as being different. Um, so this is the reason. Let me read to you um, Leviticus 20. We've already studied this, verse 25. It says, you shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean, and you shall not make yourself abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean, and you shall be holy to me. I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The reason 
for the dietary laws was that they would be separate from the nations around them. And so this is, this is I mean, it's right there in the Word of God. So um, as you move into the New Testament, Acts 10 and 11, Peter has the vision. And in this vision, he has, it's uh, all these animals are inside this sail, inside this sheet. And um, he's a good Jew. He's never eaten the unclean animals. And the Lord tells Peter to rise, kill, and eat. And he says, no way, I will never do that. And the Lord says, don't call unclean what I have made clean. And then um, he ends up going up to the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. He goes into the house, preaches the gospel to them. They come into, uh, they're saved. The Holy Spirit falls upon them. They speak in tongues. It becomes obvious to them that they got saved just like their their first experience as a church in Acts chapter 2. They realize that God is bringing the Gentiles into the family. And so you have this spiritual lesson that comes that while the Gentiles were once considered unclean, now in Christ they're being made clean and they're, they're coming together. And so some will stop there and say, yeah, it's just spiritual, it's not literal. But you have to keep reading because as you read into Acts chapter 11, you find that Peter is rebuked for going in and eating with them. Not just preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and seeing them come into the, the covenants and promises of God, but he also eats with them. And so you're going to have to do some study on your own. In Acts chapter 15, there is no prohibition about eating, um, keeping these dietary laws. The only prohibition about eating in Acts 15 is that you are to go to the temple and eat things that were being sacrificed at the temple. In Galatians chapter 2, Peter is rebuked by Paul because Peter was fellowshipping and eating with Gentiles until... Jews that were zealous for the dietary laws showed up, and then he canceled all of his you know, bacon cheeseburger grill outs and didn't want to spend any time with them. And Paul says, I stood up and I rebuked him to the face, his face in front of everybody because what he did was not right. So what we see is that they did um, set these aside. And so... I mean, you can, again, it's Galatians 2, 11 through um, 14 is where you can um, read that. And, and actually, we've got it. Let me go ahead and read it to you. It says, Now when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, this is a gospel issue, I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles, eating your bacon cheeseburger, and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? So this is the rebuke. So you can see that this was a change that was um, already happening. Now, some people want to come to the Old Covenant law, and they'll want to divide it into sections. They're like, well, there's the dietary portions, there's the ceremony portions, and there are these uh, moral portions of the law. And they'll begin to pick and choose. Well, we keep this part of the law, but we don't keep that. So we don't keep the judicial parts. We don't stone people anymore. But we got to keep the dietary parts. And so they'll divide the law up. But is the Old Covenant law a divisible unit? 
Was it given to Israel in portions or was it given to them as a covenant, as a single covenant? And the answer is it was a single covenant. And so what we read in the New Testament is that if you break one part of the law, you break what? You break the whole law. So, okay, we're not going to keep the judicial parts of the laws, but I'm going to put myself under the dietary parts. Okay, well, if you don't keep that part, then you're breaking the whole, pe- the whole thing. We, the law is an indivisible unit to which people will say, oh, so we're not supposed to keep the moral aspects or we're supposed to live unholy lives? To which I will respond, before the law came, were people living unholy lives and God didn't care? God has always cared about holiness. He cared about holiness in the garden. He cared about holiness uh, before the flood. He cared about holiness after the flood. He cared about holiness in the days of Abraham when Sodom and Gomorrah were being destroyed. There's always been a standard of righteousness that God requires upon people. Then came the law for Israel. And this was now how God had revealed he wanted his people to live, the nation of Israel. But after the law passed away, it does not therefore go back to, um, it, or it doesn't go to a place where we are now lawless. God has always had a law upon the hearts and the minds of his, of, of his creation. So no, it's not that by saying that we don't keep any part of the old covenant law that we are encouraging lawlessness. Though the New Testament is full of commands of how we should walk and what we should do and what we should think and what we should say and how we should conduct ourselves sexually and financially and, um, and you know, in business practices. There's all kinds of commands in the New Testament. So the idea that says, well, you can't set aside the um, moral aspects of the law because in doing that, you now um, are saying that we should live lawless. That's, that's not true. That is, that is just a false accusation. Uh, so the, the burden of proof is um, upon those that would want to keep the, the law because we, as we've gone through Hebrews, have found out that it has passed away. Now, if you want to eat like this, more power to you. Just don't condemn anybody around you. So if you, if you want to say, well, I, you know, this is the way I, I keep, that's the way I eat. All right, that's great. I have no problem with that. Um, but don't try and put that upon anybody else. And then if your heart, you begin to think that you're more righteous or you're doing this because this was commanded, you got to keep the whole thing. It's not a divisible unit. It, there's not sections of it. We make up these sections. So God gave it to them as one whole law, and it passed away as one whole law, superseded with the new covenant. I realize that's a lengthy explanation, but here's why I keep doing this. Because we are under the new covenant, and we are reading the law. If I don't keep reminding, I just, I'm afraid that some are going to say, oh, we got to start doing these things. But what you've seen me do is I gave a... a Kind of an explanation there of our relationship to the Old Covenant, to the law. But I also deliberately showed you how we, while we don't stone people, we do look and say, well, how should we deal with people that sin? And we went to the New Testament to find out. How do we deal with our family? Well, we went to the New Testament to find out. So you can find teachings in the Old Testament that there is a principle that is found in both of them. And that is the difficult work to do, is to find the principle. 
and you, you can check me on this, and I'm not going to, I'm just going to say it. Almost all false teaching that you find inside the church is somebody taking a passage from the Old Testament and applying it in the New Covenant. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm telling you, you, you go work it out. And um, you listen to people, and a lot of the false teaching that ends up coming into the church, they're not taking you to the New Testament. They're drawing upon some Old Testament passage. So, everybody should be healthy and wealthy. They're going to use Old Testament. They're not gonna, that, that, was a, that was part of the covenant made to Israel. So, I'm just saying, go, go check it out on your own. See if it's right. So um, anyway, this is, this is what's going on. Um, they, uh, down in 22 through 29, uh, they're in chapter 14 still. Um, he is going to tell them how they should actually handle their money. And so verse 22, you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. A tithe means you were to give 10%. You were able to hold the 90. You were to give 10% of the increase of your field. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil of the firstborn. So of their flocks they were to tithe as well. You're supposed to give the firstborn. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So why do we give to the Lord? Well, he says that you would learn to fear God. Is that something that carries over into the New Testament? Yeah, that carries over. Does the tithe carry over? You're going to be hard-pressed to find a verse in the New Testament that commands a tithe. And then some people are here and say, whew, extra 10% of my salary. Okay, well, let's, let's hold on just a second here, okay? And so um, there's, he's going to talk about this. And as you, as you read through this, um, you're going to find that there are a couple of different tithes. Um, uh, let's look, skip down to verse 27. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion nor inheritance with you, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that your Lord God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So, you know, when you go through the entire law, what you end up finding out is that there was a tithe of the increase of their land. There was a tithe that was for the poor that, that came every third year. And they were also to, uh, to have a tithe that was to take care of the, of the house of the Lord. So actually, year over year, they gave 23 and a third percent. This is what they gave. So it was two tithes yearly and then a, another one that came every third year. So, uh, again, you can, uh, a couple of references for you. Leviticus 27, 30 through 33. Numbers 18, 8 through 32. And Deuteronomy 22 through 29. So this is how they gave. Now, in the New Testament, what do we give to? Well, 3 John 6 says we give to missionaries. Um, Romans 10.15 says we give to missionaries, those who are going to preach the gospel. Um, 2 Corinthians 9 says we give to the poor. Uh, 1 Timothy 5.17 talks about supporting those who labor in the Word, so supporting those that, that serve the church. So those are the three places you can find in the New Testament that you're to give to. But you don't find that it says that you are to tithe. Um, what is the principle then of the New Testament? Here it is. 2 Corinthians 9.6-8. 
But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So what's the principle? Is that we give bountifully, and that we give in faith. That, th- these are the principles. I give knowing that God's going to take care of me. So this is the, the principle that we find in the New Testament is we give generously. So no, there, the, you, I, you can't find a verse that says, you know, and church tithe. But those are the three things that you are to give to. Um, you can find some other places that will probably, you would put into one of those three buckets of missions, the, the, the poor, the needy, or, um, you know, the support of the church. So, um, yeah, t- take a look at it. But the question that we need to ask ourselves is not am I giving 10% or am I giving 23 and a third percent? The question is, determine in your own heart, and the principle is we should be giving bountifully. We should be giving generously. And so the, the word of the Lord from Second Corinthians there is, and God's going to be able to take care of you. And this is often the thing that limits us, if we're honest, from giving. Because I'm afraid if I give, I'm not going to have enough. And so we need to grow. We need to learn to fear God. And, and so we give to those things. Now, as you move into chapter 15, it's going to talk about canceling debt every seven years. It's going to go um, more into the idea of um, looking out for the poor. So, you know, every seven years, a debt would be canceled. So if somebody owed you money, they couldn't pay it. They became, um, you know, um, in your debt at the end of the seven years, they, um, they would be released. Um, in verse 11, though, let's see, I think it's verse 11. Let's see if I can find it real quick. Verses 7 through 11. Well, let's just read. It says, If there is a, a, among you a poor man of your brethren with any, within any of the gates in your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your brother. Don't shut your hand, right? But you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs, Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year of release is at hand. If I loan it to him now, I'm going to have to let him go. And your EI be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry out against the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all your works and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from the land. Jesus mentioned that, right? Therefore I command you, saying, You shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and your needy in your land. Open hand policy. That's what we're supposed to have with each other. Uh, within, even within the church. I mean, John talks about this. If you see your brother in need and you don't give to him, you don't love God. Because if you can't love your brother who's in need, then you, and you see, you're, you don't love the Lord. So, I mean, read it, First John. So we are to be open and generous with those that are needy. Proverbs 19, 17. He who has pity on the poor lends to Yahweh, and he will pay back what he has given. What's that? 
God doesn't have debts he doesn't pay. When we give to those that are in need, if it helps your heart, and I think it will, it'll help my understand that you're giving to God. I don't want to give to that person. They've always irritated me. I don't like the way they sing. You know, oh, oh, okay. You know, I don't like the way they do. I don't like, they've always irritated. I don't want to give to them. All right, would you give to the Lord? So as you give to the poor and the needy, you're giving to the Lord. And the Lord says, and don't worry about it. I pay back. I've got really good credit. I am 100% on time. And so this is an important principle for us to keep in mind. Now, verses 12 through 18, he talks about taking care of departing servants. So if you had servants and they served you for a time and the year of release was coming or they had fulfilled their indebtedness to you, um, when they were leaving, you were to give to them in such a way that they could go out and that they would have enough resources so that they wouldn't end up back in debt and find themselves having to sell themselves into uh, servitude again. So the, in verses 12 through 18 of chapter 15 is where I'm looking. So let's pick up at verse 13. And when you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt. You had a need. And look how he led you out. Look how he gave to you when he took you out. When a person is leaving your house after serving you, you send them away with a huge going away party. And you set them up generously, liberally, so that they don't have to come back in 15 minutes and get in servitude again. This was God's way of making certain to try and end that poverty cycle. Now he acknowledges it's always going to be there, but it doesn't mean that you don't try to fix it or address it, right? And so this was God's plan. Have an open hand to him. Oh, and when your servant goes, set him up. Take care of them. Yeah, but this is mine. No, it's actually not yours. It's what God gave to you. God gave it to you. So if God gave it to you and he's telling you to help people out, then we must fear him, obey him, and send people on their way in such a way that they will um, they'll not end up in trouble again. So again, just some, some important lessons that I think we can ask ourselves. You know, What is your hand like to those that are needy around you? Tight-fisted or open? The problem with an open hand, you've heard me say this, if you've been around here for years, you know what I'm going to say. The problem with an open hand that has resources in it, when you're around people that are in need, is that somebody may grab it and run. And I'm just going to tell you, that really irritates me. That very thought of somebody taking advantage is, is problematic in my mind. I mean, it. You know, and so this is my struggle, okay? I've got to, I, I, this is the commandment, is have an open hand. People take advantage, then that is on them, and that is going to be between them and the Lord. Now, if I know they're going to take advantage, that's a different, different story. If people come in, and this is how, when people come in and they seek to manipulate us, you guys are a church, right? 
Yes, we're a church. And you're supposed to take care of and help people. Yes, we are. Well, I need you to pay my bills. No, not going to do it. Because you're trying to manipulate me. And manipulation is not a godly thing to do. I'm not going to endorse your manipulation. Now, we can sit down and work through this, but your manipulation tactic just told me I shouldn't give to you. And so this is, I think, you know, how you, you, you can discern that open hand of, of when do you pull it back. And Because there are people that this is what they do for a living. They don't work. Well, shouldn't we give to everybody? Well, New Testament says if you don't work, you shouldn't eat. But you should also help out those. that do. So if there's an ability to work and you're not, you're on your own. If you're in a difficult place because of circumstances, then we should help out. So there, this, is a, this is the attitude that, that we should have towards those that are in need around us. Now in verses 19 through 23, ending uh, verse 15, uh, chapter 15, um, the firstborn male that comes from the herd and the flock, they were to be given to the Lord. Okay, that was the Lord's. And um, so he, he just talks about this. There are many ways in which financially they worshiped and they gave to the Lord. Now, in chapter 16, I'm not going to spend much time there. We're moving along here, coming to the end. But also, we have spent a lot of time on these feasts and these festivals. This is just a reminder to them, 40 years later, he's saying, remember these feasts when you come in. In verses 1 through 8, um, um, you see that they were to keep the feast of Passover to the Lord your God in the ninth, uh, in the month of Abib. The Lord your God brought you out of uh, Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God. So this, in conjunction with the, um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, so six days would be the unleavened bread, and then there would be um, the Passover. So it was a, a seven-day, it was a week-long uh, festival that had two different feasts included in this. It was to commemorate their deliverance out of Egypt. Of course, Jesus is our Passover lamb. He died on Passover for us. He was the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world to take away our sin. But this beautiful picture of the lamb was painted going all the way back, clearly, um, to the Exodus. Verses 9 through 12 was the Feast of Weeks. This feast was to be a thanksgiving to God for the grain harvest. So they would come and they were to celebrate that God had blessed their land. Uh, verses 13 through 17, another mandatory feast was a feast of tabernacles. Um, and this was to commemorate their wilderness wanderings. So they would go set up a, a lean-to. They'd go outside and camp. And they would be outside looking up. And the kids would be, and Dad, why are we outside again? Why are we, out, why are we sleeping outside? we got a house. This is for us to remember that our, our forefathers... Um, that they were taken care of and they wandered through the wilderness and they slept out in the wilderness, but the Lord took care of them all these years. So it was to commemorate God's faithfulness to them during that wilderness wanderings. Now let's read verses 18 through um, 20 here in chapter 16. Um, and he's going to speak to them about walking in justice. So a word to the judges. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your gates, which the Lord your God gives you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with just judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. 
For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. You shall follow what is altogether just, that you may live and inherit the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not plant for yourself any tree. Then verses 21 and 22 talks about idolatry. Don't plant a tree and make a wooden image and worship it. So yeah, you know, bribes are going to corrupt a person's ability, obviously, to make a right and righteous decision. Boy, certainly a point of prayer for us in our country, isn't it? Is that those that are in the place of making laws and those that are in the place of uh, making a judgment that they do the righteous thing. But that also implies not just in the uh, judicial system. Do the just thing as a supervisor. Do the just thing as the owner of the company. Do the just thing in every aspect of your life. We are to walk um, uprightly and not to be corrupted. So he warns them um, to make certain that doesn't take place. Lastly, in chapter 17, um, we'll read at verse 1. He says, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God a bull or sheep which has any blemish or defect, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. What's that? Don't give the Lord that which is broken. Give the very best you have to the Lord. Don't give him your leftovers or your cast-offs. And so as they come. Now read the book of Malachi connected with Deuteronomy 17 verse 1. If you want to get a, a blow-up on Deuteronomy 17, verse 1, a commentary on it, go read the book of Malachi, and you'll hear this. Hey, take these sacrifices and give it to your king or your governor. Give them that, you know, you know three-legged, lame sheep that, that can't see and can't hear and has sores all over it. Go give it to your governor and see how he feels about your gift. You would be showing a disrespect if you brought that to him. And he says, I'm a great God. Don't bring that stuff to me. Bring a gift that is fitting for me. And so we bring the very best that we have. So that's the the exhortation there. In verses 2 through 7, again, the the word comes forth. It's repeated over and over again. Um, that if you find somebody who is um, getting engaged in idolatry, you are to deal with them harshly, lest people be turned away, lest they walk away from God, lest they walk away from salvation. That is a, the, the bigger issue there. In verses 8 through 13, um, he gives them instruction of how to solve the really difficult judicial cases. If a matter arises which is too hard for you to judge, between degrees of guilt or bloodshed, between one judgment or another, or between one punishment or another, matters of controversy within your gates, then you shall rise, go up to the place which the Lord God, your God chooses, and you shall come to the priests and the Levites and to the judge there in those days and inquire of them. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. And then it basically goes on to say, and you better do it. Don't change your mind once they've told you what to do. So, um, you know, if the situation was so difficult, it's like, I don't know what to do. Well, you know, then take it to others that um, maybe have more wisdom and are in a place to think on these more difficult issues. So that's how they were to deal with the the controversial, um, uh, you know, issues that 
you know, they'll be faced with as, you know, local judges. Take it to the, take it to the higher court, if you will. And then verses 14 through 20 um, is laws for the kings. So you have laws for the judges. Now here's some laws for the kings. And um, these were not followed by the kings. But let's just read it and we'll close there. Verse 14. When you come to the land which the Lord your God has given you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall multiply he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor because or nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, because that's where you went to get the horses, was down to Egypt. For the Lord has said, You shall not return that way again. Neither shall you multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Now as you hear that, what's one king that stands out that blew each one of these in epic proportions? Who is it? Solomon. And Solomon was known to be what kind of man, though? Most wisest man there was. Problem is, he didn't walk it out himself. And so this is his don't do this. Make certain of this. Verse 18. Also, it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of this law in a book from the one before the priest, the Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he might not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. Read Kings and Chronicles and find out how often their lives were cut short because in their throne because they didn't do this. So this was the Lord's commandment, and they failed to do this. So if you read about the many horses or the many wives or the you know obscene amount of money, um, that these guys were seeking after, um, building temples to other gods. And so, God wasn't approving. The scripture is just being honest with how they lived. And so, there. So, we have some commands here that we are to be loyal to the Lord even over family. Jesus is worthy of it. I hope you believe that. And it's like, well, are we not supposed to love family? No, love your family. But if your family's going to keep you from loving Jesus, you've got to make your choice. And the answer is, Jesus wins every day, all day long. We should be generous with our giving. And we have a relationship with the law that is very different than the relationship that Israel had with the law. This law has passed away. And the new covenant has come in. And um, this is not how we are to conduct and live today. But there are many principles and even some commandments, I'll say even many commandments, that are repeated in the New Testament. But even in those things that do not transfer over, look for the principles of instruction and wisdom, and you'll find them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your wisdom and your guidance. We see how you carefully led this nation, the startup nation, Lord, your startup nation, and you gave them everything they needed.
You told them how to come into, the, um, into your presence. You told them how to deal with um, justice and how to deal with difficult cases. You've told them how to deal with their finances and the poor and the needy and the corrupt and the, and the false prophet. For the wandering family member, Lord, you spoke to them on so many different levels and you gave them a blessing as they had that law. It was a good law. But Lord, it was not the means by which we would ever be justified. And so we are grateful to be those that now, um, Jew and Gentile, Gentile alike, coming together as one new man under the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we, um, we want to walk uprightly. We want to treat people fairly. We want to walk in holiness. We want to be set apart from the nations. Lord, so help us to, to see how we ought to be living and where there is compromise to see how serious you are that we should walk uprightly and that we would walk in the fear of you. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.